Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Ben Brits. Hey, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we finally met face to face at the AWS Community Day in the Netherlands a couple of weeks back. Uh, and it was really good to finally see you in person. And also, we had a really good chat about uh, some of the I guess, best practices around uh, AWS organizations, some of the things that uh, AWS is not doing quite enough in that space. Uh, but also, went to your talk uh, about common mistakes customers you've seen people make, uh, or rather, mistakes that you've made yourself that uh, you wish you knew. That's the way I like to talk about it. Like, I've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, I've also seen some mistakes, but like a lot of the mistakes that are interesting to talk about are the ones that are like the logical mistakes to make, like those like little traps that are out there. Uh, and I've definitely like, like fall into some of those. Uh, so that was like a very fun talk to like compile those and share those. Yeah, those definitely strike a chord with me as well. Uh, I've, I've made similar mistakes in the past myself. Um, I guess before we get into that, uh, let me just uh, maybe ask you to introduce yourself and talk about uh, you know, what do you do? Because um, so I know you work for Cloud uh, in the Belgium and you guys are really big consultancy focusing entirely on AWS. So maybe you know, give us a, paint us a picture of uh, what do you do? Yes, so uh, I work at a company called Clouder. We're a primary consulting partner, um, which means that like we do everything that has to do with AWS, but also only AWS uh, in our case. Uh, that's not true for, for every consulting partner, but that's like the way we approach it. Uh, is that we want to be like the like light bulb that goes on if you think about I need some help with something in AWS, and I'm in Belgium of around there. Like we have some international clients as well. Um, like we want to like be able to help there. So that goes from doing like very uh, hands-off stuff where we're, like, sometimes it's just doing reselling and billing and cost allocation uh, to like we also have like a full managed service business where we will like take everything that's on the ABS level out of customers' hands and like manage that for them. And then in between that whole spectrum, we do consulting where we will either do short-term projects, just like getting people started um, have like do migrations or we will have like long uh, long running projects where we have someone at a customer uh, on site and, and like re working remotely uh, with them for for like years sometimes yeah i guess the the sort of traditional consulting business uh, everyone's kind of familiar with that um, but i think uh, what's really interesting from what we discussed at the aws community day was this uh, almost like a managed aws account uh, as a service that you provide to your customers which i think is a really interesting business um i guess the proposition and also something that uh, i actually i just think a lot of customers uh, would be interested in because they want to use AWS. Um, they want to use different services. They want to get all the benefits from AWS, but they don't really know how to sort of scale that AWS environment, how to secure them, how to manage the environment. And oftentimes you find the internal teams essentially doing what you offer to your customers, but they're coming out with um, bespoke implementations, which I think uh, oftentimes uh, create too much friction and uh, it's not necessarily following industry best practices. Can you maybe uh, talk about uh, what does this uh, sort of manage the AWS account as, as a service that you guys do? Yeah, so uh, we, uh, like we, we, we call it our landing zone. It's also for us built on the uh, open source AWS landing zone solution. Um, well, I think it's technically open source. I don't think the code is actually on GitHub. Um, 
where uh, the idea is that like there's certain things that you want to do in every account. And so we're managing accounts for our customers. We're managing the workloads for our customers in those accounts. Uh, but we also want to make sure that like even like we want to be flexible in what we allow customers to run. So we're not going to say like this is like we offer you like this packet of like you can have a web server with something in front of that and you can put your like your YAR file in that and that's it. Uh, we basically say you can use whichever AWS service that you want, but we're going to put like those guardrails and those monitoring on top, on top, uh, inside of that. So we will make sure that like things are deployed with CloudFormation that we're uh, looking at is there like security groups that are open to the world or there is three buckets that should be configured differently. Like we will have our tools on top of, uh, or like maybe next to your application where we will um, like do that like central management of these are things we know are not a good idea to do in your AWS account. And then so we can like hopefully prevent it from getting that far because like this is part of our main services. So like we've, We'll do the setup for you as well, uh, if you want. Like we have some customers that do want to write their own CloudFormation or Terraform or CDK, and then we deploy that for them after like doing a review of it. Uh, but like we also just offer it, like we will do everything for you. Just like you tell us what you need and we'll write the CloudFormation and deploy it for you. Uh, so like we have basically different approaches of making sure that what actually gets deployed is... Um, it's not something that will blow up in your face, basically. Okay, yeah, I think that's uh, that's quite that's that's quite interesting approach and quite interesting service. Uh, and again, I think uh, a lot of customers uh, that I've seen would have been uh, quite happy to use something like that to get them started at least uh, until they get to a certain level of maturity and being able to you know do a lot of that uh, themselves. It, it is a problem that like everybody runs into at some point because like the general best practice within AWS is to use multiple accounts. And that is great, and like it's it's less work than you think it is. Like the the step from going to one to two or three accounts, and then going to like a hundred accounts, like that scaling. Once you have like that first three accounts in place, is not terrible. Uh, but there's also all the tools that are or like well, I'm not going to say all the tools. Like there's a lot of different tools that like help with that. So it's hard to know which one do you want to use. And there's like within the AWS ecosystem, you have control tower and organizations, and none of it is perfect. It's all like it has like all it has its rush edges everywhere. You need to know like it's uh, for example, just as an example, like control tower will not deploy guard duty. Guard duty is something that you basically want everywhere in your accounts. So like knowing that and like having a way to then deploy guard duty on top of your control tower configuration, uh, like those things are just hard. And I, I don't think that our solution is necessarily like the end all of it. Like I wouldn't, um, like if you would start again, I wouldn't build it on top of that landing zone solution because like that was like the best thing out there the moment that we started. Uh, but you need something. You need like something in place to know like I'm going to have something like in every account to like enable guard you to have config, have cloud trail, like all those things. Uh, and it's, there's not a great solution uh, out there yet. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Um, and personally, I do like to use the automation. I think for me, that's probably still the, the best one out there and solves uh, some really interesting problems that uh, are quite difficult to do with a landing zone, which is uh, focusing on one account. Yeah. Uh, but when you got those you know, cross-account references and things like that, where uh, stacks set, 
is useful for sort of just you know, taking a template and deploying them yeah. resources to different accounts, uh, but not so much for, oh, I want to have uh, your sort of one audit account with the S3 bucket for all my cloud trails and then have all the, my other accounts being able to just say, every time I create a new account, that's not the audit account, just uh, you know, enable the cloud trail and ship my logs to this one S3, uh, S3 bucket in this uh, uh, audit account. And that's the sort of thing that I think I have to do almost every single time I create a new organization. Uh, and that kind of thing really requires across account references. It becomes quite hard to do yeah. without something like all formation. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Like the recommendation that I usually give is if you have already something, you probably want to use that because you've invested in that. But if you're like starting from scratch, uh, if you know what you want, org formation is probably the best uh, solution. Uh, but like it requires knowing you what are the things that you want to put in there. If you have no idea what you want, but you want to have, have something, then Control Tower is like a decent way to start. Like it, it has a lot of things that it doesn't do or like I wish it would do differently. And like you still end up running your own customizations software on top of it which is like more management for you um but it's it's a, a place to get started at least uh, whereas uh, org formation requires a little bit more of you making decisions where you can start with control tower just like click clicking the console click on like the four buttons and then you have something yeah, yeah. With all formation, you have to learn its own syntax and all that as well. There's uh, some really clever things you can do, which, uh, again, you know, when it's clever, it means that there's a bit of a learning curve. Yeah, I think it, it, it's absolutely worth the investment, but it, it's a balance you have to choose there. Sometimes it's not something you want to immediately start with. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and uh, and yeah, talking about things that the old formation, you know, you wish that they would do differently. One thing I've come across, uh, uh, sorry, not old formation, uh, organizations, uh, I've come across several times now is um, you, you have got these uh, organization events, uh, which are basically, you know, uh, when you enable all of these uh, events in the um, uh, in CloudTrail that you can then capture and all of that. Uh, but then, the, you know, it enables the sort of centralizing of all of your CloudTrail logs in the into one central account, uh, but it charges you based on the number of events that gets raised. And that got really expensive really quickly, even when I've got like a bare bone empty environment uh, whereas, uh, you know, when I just do what I normally do of uh, enabling CloudTrail, but then ship the logs to S3 in this uh, one audit account, uh, I almost pay nothing for that uh, because uh, S3 is so, you know, so much cheaper and don't get charged extra for every single event. So yeah. like, there's some things like that which uh, you just I, I keep running into, like small things that you just think, okay, why would they do this? Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. I, I think that's especially true with serverless where there are certain services with AWS that are uh, like where the uh, unit cost works much better if you work with servers. Uh, like you have some things where it's like small, like config, you pay per change, which means if you're working with a serverless application, you're going to be paying for every deployment. If you're working with servers and you just, you're not replacing that, but just like pushing config or like pushing your code into that server, then you don't pay anything. And I think the same is true for DevOps Guru, where you like pay per monitored resource and then like Lambda gets more expensive because you have a lot more of those. Um, so that that's, I, I like, I feel that pain where like the, uh, I want my billing model to be 
similar to Lambda for everything, where I like pay like a very, very tiny amount. Um, and like I don't get punished for uh, creating more of something. Like I, I'm I'm willing to pay more for using more of something, uh, but like for the creation, having to pay for, for like a thing that exists, even if you don't use it, is always a painful thing. Yeah, I remember back in the day, uh, Datadog was charging, I think, $5 per resource. Uh, and when you've got Lambda, you can easily have <laughs> you know hundreds of those. So it just becomes crazy expensive. I think, the, um, I think was it last year, they changed the pricing model for Lambda so that it's no longer based on number of resources you monitor. Yeah. So that it just, you know, doesn't just become crazy expensive when someone uses a lot of Lambda functions. So I guess talking about uh, sort of you know, Lambda and serverless, uh, you know, you guys do all AWS, uh, which obviously means you know, quite a lot of serverless, uh, but also sometimes containers, sometimes uh, EC2 as well. Um, do you have some, I guess, uh, some sort of high-level guideline in terms of uh, when would you recommend a serverless to a customer? Uh, and uh, when would you say, you know, let's just do containers or let's do EC2 instead? The, I, like, I'm a big proponent of serverless. Uh, like in general and managed services in specific. So I like to try to do as much serverless as possible, but it also really depends on where are you coming from. I'm pretty sure you had like this kind of conversations before because uh, I listened to some episodes of your podcast. Um, so the you can't go or you can't always go from we're running like on a, a virtual machine in a data center to now we're doing everything um, with Lambda functions in DynamDB. Um, not because like that's too big of a leap, but because the timelines just don't always work. Like there, you will need to like rewrite everything at some point for that. Like you, you can't just take, well, you, there are ways to do it, but like it's usually not the best idea to take like your production application and like this very important to you, then like put a wrap around it and like put it in a Lambda function. Like it works, there are tools for that. And if it's something that's, um, I'm sure there are people that are very successful with that, and I, I like those, but I don't think that's like the end of it, and it's probably not what you want to do with an application that's going to be working on and like keeping improving. Uh, so then it becomes a question about how much uh, development effort do you want to put in this specific application to make it serverless, and what are like the wins there? And in a lot of cases, the first wins are not in your compute. Because if you're like if it's a somewhat modern application, and in that me I mean like the last ten or fifteen years, your the most part of your compute is going to be stateless. So whether you run it in like it's easier to run at the lambda than running containers and to run on a server. But if something goes wrong with that, that's not your biggest pain point. Like your biggest pain point is going to be your database, your storage, um, those things. So like moving things to S3 and making that part serverless, like the part that like has your data to put that on S3 or, or like have something time to be in there, uh, I think is usually much more important than whether you end up running it like on Elastic Beanstalk or on uh, in a container uh, or in a Lambda function. Uh, even though like I would want everyone to like get the benefits of the Lambda function where they only pay for the actual request that they get, um, sometimes that's like too much of a rewrite uh, to do that immediately. Uh, one thing that we do see with our clients is that you don't have to do it all at once. Like you can move, like you can do it like as a longer term thing. 
where we say like, okay, we need to like get out of our data center. Like our contract is ending there. We um, lift and shift these services. Like we replatform the database, we replatform the storage. And then once we've, once we're in the cloud, we put API gateway in front and then we look at what are like our critical paths. Like, do we need, like, is this something that like is going to get a lot of requests that's going to be um, like, or very burstable in requests. Let's pull that out of there, put a Lambda function in there and then uh, run that, uh, like in, basically like inter inter intercept that uh, entry point. Uh, the other thing where we see that like the more serverless approach is very successful is uh, our clients that do a lot of data processing because their workloads are uh, almost by definition very batch centric. And those are usually like they, they like are like even more stateless than like your typical website or like know already about like having external data and moving those to either step functions within either Lambda functions or Fargate containers underneath depending on what, what data they're going to be using and how long they're going to be running is something that like I feel like works very well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, uh, especially when the most projects uh, you know, have got deadline you've got to worry about. Uh, you can't just uh, do the, you know, the absolute best thing. You have to do the, the thing you can achieve within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but I guess uh, this, um, this strategy of uh, you know, trying to you know, push someone towards, uh, say, DynamoDB or S3, I think S3 is fairly easy to integrate with. Uh, but I also find that uh, a lot of customers struggle with DynamoDBs, especially when they've uh, you know, always worked with relational databases. DynamoDB, the fact that it's really restrictive, is something that I really love personally. The fact that you can't do anything that just won't scale. Uh, but I think a lot of customers find that really difficult. Um, have you found some? Have you found some uh, sort of successful pattern for uh, introducing something like DynamoDB to a customer who's uh, just never used something like that before? Yeah, I, I, like I, I agree with that. Like, and especially if you're working with frameworks, if you're used to working with like an ORM layer, and then you have to plug in DynamoDB, where you not only have to care about defining your data like entities in your code, but now you also have to like really define them in your database. Uh, that becomes really hard. Uh, the places where where I think it's I, I think that well, let me rephrase it differently. I think like the same thing applies here with like taking it like little pieces. There are like certain places where DynamoDB is a, like a very good fit for almost everyone. Uh, sometimes that's just like on the operational side of things, uh, where if like oh we have to do some like user management for like our internal users. Like that's very like straightforward. It's obviously going to be like exactly that user. Um, sometimes things like session management, management, depending on like how latency sensitive you are, uh, can be also like a good fit there. Uh, but yeah, I agree. It's hard. Like I don't think there's like a one way to go to DynamoDB, especially if, like if you're coming from like the uh, like if you if you're not running everything serverless. Like if you're like still using some and, and even their containers um, or uh, especially EC2, if you're already like thinking with like those long running processes in mind, then DynamoDB is like a very big jump. I think once you're like inside of like that, that function as a service ecosystem where like everything is very ephemeral and very short lived and you actually run into problems if you want to talk to a relational database because now you need that um, RDS proxy in front of it, or like you do a lot, need a lot of memory tweaking, or like the um, 
Aurora HTTP APIs, at that point, you start feeling the pain of using a relational database. Uh, and I think that's like the, the place where like you, you're going to look at, can we use something else? Like where's the data coming from? Does that need to be in a relational database or can this be in DynamDB? Uh, and I think that also ties into like the, the second place where it's usually an, an easier thing is uh, people who move to um, GraphQL. I see there that like DynamDB is like a much like easier way to get started with them. Uh, or like much more popular because like you have that direct integration um, with AppSync and IMDB where you can just say like, oh, this is my endpoint, um, this is my database and like figure it out. You do end up like it in a single table design or multi-table design that way, which I know like um, Alex Debris will not be a big fan of, uh, but like it is one way to like get familiar with it at least. Yeah, I think uh, Alex is a fan of using multi-tables of approach when it comes to AppSync. I think he's got a pretty good uh, blog post that I can uh, uh, link in the show notes uh, where he talked about the trade-offs. And when I spoke with him before, he was uh, he was saying how you know, he felt with AppSync and GraphQL, it makes more sense to use uh, multiple tables rather than the single table design. And I think one of the things that uh, you also get forced into doing more if you use a single table design with AppSync is having to write more logic in VTO, which yeah. drives people crazy. People just, they yes. hate VTO, <laughs> they can't stand it. Um, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, not, it's yeah. not everyone's cup of tea, but uh, I think you get used to it, uh, at least yeah. I have. <laughs> I think it also makes sense because like with GraphQL, you're mostly working like your data access is going to be, or like the data pattern is going to mostly be defined client side. Um, so you will be harder to model it as a, as a single table anyway because like it's very hard much harder to like predict those those accesses okay so uh, switching back to kind of what we started off with uh, now this talk you did about mistakes that you've made yourself that you wish you had known better back in the day um are there some other sort of common mistakes that you've seen customers make uh when they make this uh, transition to the cloud or to serverless yes uh, one thing that i've been like thinking about a lot lately and that ties a little bit in that that common mistake thing is that it's very hard to be like a, a platform, a cloud enablement, or like whatever you want to call it, like that, like uh, cloud center of excellence team. Uh, because like almost every mistake that I made in the end led to you uh, have like some piece of code or infrastructure where the ownership is not clearly defined. So like my, my general recommendation for if you're getting like started with the cloud and you're starting like a cloud center of excellence, like a cloud enablement team where you're going to like put your cloud experts in is to make sure that if you build something uh, or if you're going to be um, like defining best practices that you make sure that you actually allow people to learn the best practices and like have them own the thing that they're deploying instead of saying oh we do everything for you like it, it's a good thing to like make things easier but you can't hide the things like you can't say, uh, like we will set up your S3 bucket with all the best practices, and like you just need to call, like talk to the API, and and that's it. Because at some point, people will have like their own special request that they need, like I need a different kind of S3 bucket, or there will be a new best practice, and they have to update all the S3 buckets of all the teams, and that is hard because you might think that you know what you're doing with that S3 bucket, but you don't. There will always be some edge case where they're 
Uh, you think everything is private, but there, uh, or you think everyone is using bucket policies, for example, but there's still one team that's using ACLs and you want to disable ACLs like company-wide, you flip the switch and then suddenly the application is broken. Um, and I think that is like the main thing I've learned, like making those mistakes is that like the, 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 the place where they're most painful is where you try to do something for someone else and then you break their thing. And it usually starts with like you you've like first help them and like they're fast and like everything goes great. And then a year later you break their thing. So it's like not always like immediately obvious that like you're uh, taking things away from them is leading to that um, that that place of now we have to do everything for them or where they like don't own it anymore or it's like very muddy. Um, so I think that's like my main uh, my main takeaway of like things to be careful about is like you don't want to do things behind people's back. Um, I or like to give like a, a very like clear example. Uh, like there are some tools like CDK that allow you to plug in. Um, uh, CDK is called Aspects, but like our tools with similar things where you can basically can say every time I see an S3 bucket being deployed, uh, change this setting, right? Like make sure it's encrypted, make sure uh, public access block is enabled. And like doing that thing of doing that check of like making sure that it follows the best practices, I'm a big fan of that. Like make sure that like everything is deployed the right way, but you can't do it by hiding it. You have to just like fill the pipeline, show people like this is something that is not following best practices. Please change your configuration because they own the configuration instead of going like, oh, like I could easily, like I know what the best thing is. I'll just like set all the properties the way I think they should be. And then they deploy it and it ends up uh, working for them and like being like following the best practices. But then the moment that something is not working, uh, like you need cross account access, they will not know that encryption is enabled and that will have an effect on like your IAM policies and things like that. Uh, so I think like the, you have to empower people basically. You don't, you can't take, uh, you have to make things easier for them, um, but you can't do it by like treating them as like, they don't, don't know what they're doing. We have to teach people who are new to cloud, like how you should do it and how you can do it. Instead of saying like, you don't know this, I'll just do it for you. Yeah, I think when it comes to defining, you know, or designing uh, abstractions, sometimes it's easy to go be too crazy and uh, think, you know, we try to reduce the amount of code users have to write uh, as much as possible which is not the whole point. It's not just about reducing the number of lines you have to write, but also, you know, you want to make sure that things that are easy to do are still easy to do with your abstraction, but mm -hmm. things that are more advanced, you can still enable those behavior, those the, those decisions, rather than just something that, uh, okay, you know, we are restricting uh, the amount of things you could do with this new abstraction. So when you do need to step outside of the boundaries that we have set, you, you know, you can't do that yourself anymore, which I think I've seen that a lot of times, especially with a lot of the sort of home, uh, homemade abstractions you've seen in a lot of companies that are probably not that experienced at the you know building abstractions and and, and tools and frameworks and uh, you see these kind of mistakes a lot. 
Um, I guess I want to maybe just pull back uh, what you said earlier about in terms of the responsibility of where those uh, platform engineering teams should be. Because one of the things I've seen a lot recently, this meme that uh, DevOps is dead, long live yeah. DevOps, and now it's all about the platform team, even though you know you and I know DevOps is a, a collection of practices and the principles is not, you know, it's not specific about you know, someone's title. The fact that you've got DevOps engineers is kind of silly to me. And uh, one of the things I've seen a lot is exactly what you described in terms of a platform team coming in, doing everything for you, no education, no integration, just you know, use this thing that we've cooked up because we know what's best. Uh, and then the, the actual application team end up having to uh, just getting, getting a lot of friction in terms of getting what they need to do done and when they need to do something different from what the so platform team had envisioned, it becomes almost impossible and you end up having a lot of this sort of friction between different, uh, uh, different uh, parts of the business because of that. Yeah, and it, it, it's frustrating for everyone because like the platform team is going to like, we've built something, nobody's using it. And like the application teams are like, we want to use it, but it doesn't do what we want to do. Or like it, it's uh, like, it takes too long to change something or like there, there are like multiple different things that that can go wrong. Um, whereas it's like, I, like there's just a lot of value in having platform teams and like SRE and DevOps and all those things. Like it's super important. You just have to, make sure that you're working together and like doing the right things. And uh, I guess instead of uh, just uh, talking about the things that customers uh, do badly, are there some sort of, some examples of some things that the customers are doing that you think, oh, wow, that's really cool that uh, I wish more people would be doing that? Uh, yes. Like, um, I think there are like a lot of places where they actually get platform teams and or like however you want to call it, like get it right. Like there's a lot of value to be created by like managing or like looking at things across all the accounts, across all the whole estate. Um, and then it can like be simple things as like, like help the security team. Like how does like, everything is an API. This is great. Like we can do the same things that we did. Like now you can like use Docker and like all that kind of more operational stuff on your local machine and like be very easy to like build things and like have access to everything. We can do the same thing in the cloud, but we can like, now it's just an API instead of something that you run uh, locally. Uh, but like, so there's like a lot of um, API driven things that the platform team can do, like look at that whole estate. Uh, like I've seen um, platform teams really look at cost. Um, I've seen them focus on tooling is something that, that's also very useful. Uh, where you can like again, they have very clearly defined owners. Like we're there, we will need, for example, uh, a Jenkins server. We're going to run Jenkins as our CI/CD. Someone has to own that. Someone has to build that. Someone has to make sure that's available. Uh, like write examples for that. Like make sure you can like integrate with all the things. Has libraries for like the common things that your that your uh, organization is going to be doing. Uh, so I think that there's like a, there's like a lot of value to be created and a lot of value being created. One thing that I also like very uh, like usually recommend, I know like some companies like Lego are doing is like looking at what are our uh, best practices and like doing things like well architecture reviews or something similar where you define like we're going to look at things we're building as an organization and we're going to make sure that we have thought about like this set of questions and that doesn't have to be like an enforcement thing where you say like our team is going to like uh, like look at all those questions and 
uh, like you're not going to production before you say yes to all of them. It can be like, like I like to call it cloud enablement. It can be that like we're going to like look at your application, go to those questions. It's going to be a conversation about like where are our business priorities, uh, where are like the things we still need to work on, uh, and make sure that like we're on the same page of like what are things that will enable us to like not just go to the cloud, but take advantage of all things that that are available in the cloud. And I think that's like where serverless also comes up very frequently, where you look at, okay, like we have all these like questions and like all these problems and things we have to solve. And like a lot of those can go away if you don't have to manage the service yourself or if you don't have to manage the scaling yourself. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of tricky things about uh, making things high available uh, that are solved easily by using API Gateway and Lambda. Yeah, and um, I remember talking to Shin about this uh, recently as well. And uh, I think he, he talks about, you know, building this uh, community of uh, practices within like companies like Lego so that, uh, you know, what they're doing in terms of the architects, uh, they're not uh, gatekeepers as uh, you know, as opposed to just being, you know, people that uh, you can pull into your project and uh, get help from as opposed to someone who have to sign off uh, on everything that you do which I think creates a very different dynamic uh, in terms of the relationship between you know, people like himself uh, and uh, the application teams themselves, which I think makes a much more harmonious um, environment for people to adopt best practices because they want to. Uh, and also, well, I guess like you said earlier, it's not about creating tools and forcing people to use it, but rather it's about education. It's about making it easy to do the right thing, but also help people understand why, that, you know, why you do it, why you need to do that in the first place. I, I really like that phrasing and like I want to tie it back to what you said earlier because like that gatekeeping is like the exact reason that you started thing, calling things DevOps. Like the whole thing of like there's like I throw it over the wall and then the operations team is sitting saying, no, we're not doing that. We just have to make sure that we're not getting to that same situation again with cloud where it's like, oh, I throw it to the cloud team and now the cloud team is saying, no, you're not doing that. Uh, <laughs> everything, everything all is new again, <laughs> I guess. But like I... I I think that's like this. It, it's the same vein. We're just like doing it at a, a higher abstraction level. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can say the same thing about Agile as well. That uh, Agile was initially about uh, you know a very simple uh, manifesto with a few guidelines and principles, uh, and then the things like Scrum came, and then this uh, again we're back to that rigid structure of uh, every two weeks you have a sprint, and then every sprint you've got uh, various um, ceremonies. Uh, again, we're going back to following a plan as opposed to being actually Agile and reacting to circumstances and context and, and actual needs of the project, uh, which again, yeah, it's another thing that just drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of those things are just very human. Like we all start out with the best intentions, but uh, once something goes wrong once, we're like, oh, we need, like, we need a rule about this. It's like a very human thing to, to have. And like you need some rules, but like you also need like some, uh, some freedom to like do things within, within those rules. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not calling for uh, anarchy within a project. There needs to be some oversight, some gui- uh, governance. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just. Uh, I just. It's just funny that this whole agile has been sort of turned around uh, into the thing that you're supposed to be to not be. I, like that's something that uh, like I sometimes like. I also like give some trainings now and then, uh, and like the the service monolith is something that I like mention in that same vein. Or like we want to like do things servicely and like we want to, usually it's, let's just start out with like using microservices and like these are microservices and it's like how that works and why we do that and like that's all very nice in in theory 
but I do also like want to explain it and like it's not just about splitting things up in little parts of codes and so you like can think about them separately. It's actually so you can like deploy them separately and scale them separately because otherwise you end up with like that distributed monolith where you don't like you make it you uh, it's not necessarily more complex it's just like more externally complex uh, but like you're still doing everything at the same time you're still running that through that same problems like the same ownership thing like that I basically started with comes up again in that way like we're all deploying things at the same time so now we have to wait on each other is something that's not solved if you just like make your microservices like all interconnected. Yep, that's why you have uh, things like uh, uh, distributed the monolith instead of uh, actual <laughs> microservices, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, before we go, I do want to just ask about, uh, you know, right now everyone is kind of laying off and uh, from what I can see, the industry is having a bit of downturn. So uh, how are you guys doing business-wise and are you guys still looking to hire people right now? Uh, we're, um, well, I, I, it's not my business, so I, I can't like speak for everything. I just, I work there. Uh, I feel like we're still on the right path, like focusing on, on that, that ABS stuff. And also like we're, we haven't grown like super fast, like we're 50 people now. I hope we'll, we will still keep growing. And I like, I know, uh, like as a business in general, we're being a little bit cautious. Like we, we do see like the, the downturn. But like, I personally also think that cloud is not going away. Uh, like there will be more cloud work. Uh, we will still be like looking for people to join us. Um, it's probably not going to be like a, like super fast. Like we like hire everyone uh, as fast as possible. Um, but like in, the, like for me, I feel like in our industry, we're still pretty small in the sense that like, I know everyone would, but not everyone, but basically you, you, you could like, if you really wanted to, you could know everyone with a cloud in Belgium and the Netherlands. Like that's not going to be a list of like 10,000 people. That's going to be a very small list. Um, and I want more people to do cloud things. And I think there will be need for more people to do cloud things. Uh, so while there might be like, I'm, I'm like, I'm definitely aware of like things like economically, like I, uh, like, uh, salaries going up and uh, all the prices of everything going up and inflation, all that thing. Like, uh, I don't want to be like super optimistic, but I also think that uh, we will need more people at some point and that it's going to be sooner rather than later. Like, I don't think cloud is going to be a business that suddenly goes away. Um, and I feel like we're, we're still like, everyone was working in cloud has work. Like, it's not like we have like extra people like sitting uh, around doing nothing. I'm hopeful that uh, the economic downturn and now there's more focus on um, companies actually being profitable. And uh, it sounds like more and more companies are now uh, paying attention to their operational expenses. That should hopefully uh, help uh, propel uh, cloud and serverless, especially when you consider how much you know people are spending on redundant you know, CPU cycles that are you know, sitting there doing nothing 24-7 and looking at serverless for a lot of applications uh, would have uh, made a lot of sense uh, from the operational cost point of view, but also from the, just the amount of people that you need uh, to get the same amount of output and productivity as well. So I'm actually hopeful that uh, this is a, you know, a good opportunity for cloud, but also for serverless uh, to make a bigger impact uh, in terms of the industry. It's definitely something if I was starting a startup, I would be running it completely serverless, not just for like the whole operational thing, 
but also for like if my like my idea now is not the right one, I have to pivot. Then like I haven't invested in like a whole bunch of servers that I don't need anymore. Uh, I can just like pivot and start uh, paying for that other thing that I'm doing now. Yeah, this whole uh, capital expenditure versus uh, operational expenditure uh, was a really big discussion early on in the in the sort of cloud thing. I remember uh, Werner talks about it all the time, but I think a lot of people just kind of forgot about it once they're in the cloud. Because when you're thinking about uh, you know building applications and uh, having to run a bunch of EC2 clusters uh, or having to run the RDS and relational databases on the on an uptime basis, again, no, those are kind of uptime cost versus uh, just paying. For based on usage, mm-hmm. which again, is something that uh, we are kind of going back to where we were before, but just in a slightly different way. Yeah. Although I do think it's like, it's important to keep that in mind, like that, that fact that like things are not like set in stone, the, the things you're spending, because the, like the, the best way to get everything out of cloud is to experiment. Like there are like, you can solve every problem like 10 different ways. Uh, so figuring out like which way is the best one for you um, sometimes will take you trying two things. Or even just like uh, like the typical example that I like to give here is like all those AI services. Like sometimes you want to do image recognition and like the AI service that like recognition that is available is perfect for you. And you can just try it and it works and gives you all the data you want. Sometimes it just doesn't give you what you want um, because you have a very specific use case. And then you have to like build your own model and like start doing like more complicated or like more uh, expensive run running things. Uh, if you don't like experiment and try out that like first service, even if that like will cost you like a few dollars for a few days, uh, then you will never know which one of the two you need. And you might start on like the expensive or difficult to maintain thing because that can do everything instead of looking at like a very specific thing that maybe fits 90% of our use case. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, I guess that's also something that's really difficult to do uh, because you know, finding a time to do the experimentations and actually learning those different services uh, is uh, it's not easy to do. It's time-consuming. Yeah, yeah it, it's not a perfect world, unfortunately, but at least you don't keep paying for it after you stop your experiment. That's also one of the nice things about the, all the service components as well, that uh, you know, when you're doing experiment, most of the time you don't have to pay for anything because uh, you know, learning the functions are based on the usage. Yeah, it sometimes takes you like it costs you more to like calculate how much it will cost than it will actually cost. <laughs> um, yeah, you say that. I actually had a, a, someone told me about uh, you know they had this meeting of I think eight people for about an hour talking about how they can optimize the cost for this lambda function. And when I heard how much that function actually cost per month, <laughs> uh, it was like uh, like a couple of dollars. So so you know. <laughs> They can do all they want, but they, they, you know, they, it's going to save them pennies and it's going to take them years to even just pay back the, the time they spend talking about how to save, uh, you know, cut down on, on cost. So I think that's uh, when it comes to Lambda, you really have to just you know, find the right place to optimize before you decide to even think about optimizations. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, like, that's also why, why Lambda, like the fact that you can spit in like, all different functions, uh, like makes it very interesting that way because maybe there's like a function that gets called a hundred times as much as the other ones. And then that's like a good candidate to look at like what's like the specific thing we can do for that function. And then for the other functions, maybe you want to do something like that's more generic to save costs. Like how like do we um, like switch everything to Graviton and save money that way, for example. Like that's something that where that 
engineering time for like how, how much are we going to save, how are we going to do it? Like you can sit uh, like you can do that for like all your Lambda functions at once, and then it might be worth it. If you're doing that like calculation for just one Lambda function, then it's probably like you said, like not worth the time um, because you're saving pennies, and, like spending. Even if you're spending like 15 minutes doing deployment to switch to Graviton, um, <laughs> it's going to take a while before you get that money back. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, Ben, uh, again, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, and I guess, uh, are you going to reinvent this year? I am going to reinvent this year, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, enjoy. I think uh, quite a few people I know are going to reinvent uh, for the first time. Um, I think Luke's going to be there as well. I just spoke with him uh, recently on this podcast. Um, but yeah, been a great challenge to you today, and uh, I will hopefully see you around uh, this part uh, soon. Yeah, hope to uh, hope to see you soon. We're not that far away, uh, so we might run to each other more. Cool. Take it yeah. easy, man. Okay, bye-bye. See you. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.